Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming to uh, this, uh, this public lecture tonight. Uh, I'm James Morrison. I'm an assistant professor here at the London School of Economics, and uh, just delighted to see uh, all of you here for uh, Andy Moravchek. Uh, let me just briefly start by saying that for those of you who are on Twitter who want to be tweeting about this, the hashtag is LSEData, LSEData. So please do um, tweet away. Um, next, I'd like to thank uh, a, a couple people who helped to make this all, all, all possible. First, LSE uh, Public uh, Lecture Program. Thank you for doing this. It's a, it's a, great, it's a, a great topic, but I think it's also a really important one and um, multidisciplinary, so it's great to see people from all over, all over the LSE. Uh, specifically, I'd like, to, I'd like to thank the IR department, which is sponsoring this event, and um, so my many thanks to the uh, IR department. And even more specifically, I'd like to thank... Sophie Wise in the IR department, who really has, has done all the actual work to bring uh, this whole event together. So thank you very much, uh, Sophie. Uh, last but not least, I have to thank our speaker, whom I'm about to introduce, but thank you, Andy, for coming uh, all this way from, from Princeton. So this is Andy Moravchek, and I don't think he needs much of an introduction, um, but I'll just say a few words. So he's a professor of politics at Princeton University and the director of their European Union program. He has authored 125 articles and no less than four books, including most famously The Choice uh, for Europe, one of, the, one of the most or perhaps arguably the most important book in, in the field. So he's a very prominent scholar on archetypical political science things, but one of the things that is so incredible about our speaker today and why we're so fortunate to have him is he truly is a very multifaceted academic. He publishes uh, serious academic research on opera and other topics. He writes regular reviews. Last night he was in uh, Covent Garden and and uh, has already written a review about that, so it's already been a productive trip for him, which is great. And most recently, I think a lot of you may have seen his piece in The Atlantic, and hopefully um, Andy will be willing to come back and, and talk to us about um, work-life balance, gender equality, uh, as, as well in the future. But today, we have Andy to talk to us about the coming revolution in uh, data, ac uh, data access and research transparency. So uh, without further ado, Andy Moravchek. Thanks a lot for having me, for organizing this. It was really James's idea, and for people from different disciplines uh, for coming. Um, with, it's a wonderful introduction, all this great stuff in different fields, and I, I suppose you're wondering, with all that great stuff, that why you're hearing a talk on something as wonky uh, as qualitative transparency in social science. Uh, so I hope to convince you that of all the different things we could have talked about, uh, the future of Europe, um, you know, relations with Russia, which we talked about this today at lunch, or, or the future of opera, or, or uh, women and men in work, if you do qualitative and historical textual research in social science or history, this is likely to influence what you do in the next 10 or 20 years more than any of those other things. So if you've got you know, an hour to spare, um, I really think this is not just interesting as a social scientist, but actually relevant. Um, so I'm, what I'm going to talk about is changes that are ongoing uh, in the United States and increasingly worldwide uh, to make research, and specifically qualitative research, historical and text-based research, more transparent. Uh, 
And I'm going to explain what that means to make it more transparent, why it's important to make it transparent, what it's going to do for the sociology of the discipline and for the prestige of the people that do that kind of research. Um, and a number of us have been working on how to do this um, and, in fact, working on realizing it within the um, complicated disciplinary structures and politics of political science in the United States. And what we've come up with is a workable solution for making this happen. Um, so let's start with just a simple question. What exactly is research transparency and how much of it do we really want? So this is the most broad academic sort of way of formulating the question. Why do we care about research transparency? What is it? Um, how do we figure out what an optimal amount of it um, is? So starting with what is research transparency? So a disciplinary norm uh, whereby empirical researchers publicize how and why they reach conclusions. Um, so you might just say simply, show their work. Now different disciplines have different ways of doing this. Um, but at least in political science, we felt that uh, the way it's being done is suboptimal, particularly in qualitative work, uh, that it doesn't provide uh, scholars with enough information about what work is being done and particularly doesn't allow them to have a conversation with one another about that work. Uh, not even as much of a conversation, and I'll show you why in a few minutes, as they had 20 or 30 years ago in working on historical stuff. Now I want to say one thing for people um, to clarify terms, when we talk about transparency, this is related to, but not identical, to a concept that some of you may have encountered in courses on scientific method or something, which is replicability, right? The idea here is not that um, social science will become completely replicable, that we make it so transparent that if I show you how I reached a conclusion, you will reach exactly the same conclusion because I've shown you the data or the analysis or anything like that, only that we will make it more transparent how I reached the conclusions I reached. Um, and so you have some idea of how that happened. You can better debate it, better criticize it, better uh, extend it, but not necessarily replicate it perfectly or be forced in any logical or deductive sense to agree with it. Um, now I want to point out that this ideal is not just a scientific norm. Of course, scientists believe in this kind of transparency, but so do historians, even historians like R.J. Collingwood, who's actually rather famous for his subjectivist or interpretist notion of history, the notion of, that we actually need to get ourselves inside the minds of people in past time, right? But even starting from this very humanistic notion of history, R.J. Collingwood's view, as this quotation suggests, is that history, like sciences, means that historians are not allowed to claim a piece of knowledge except when he or she can justify his or her claim by exhibiting the grounds on which it's based and the evidence at his or her disposal, what it proves. Um, so this is the general idea behind uh, transparency. Now the first thing that happened when we in political science set about thinking, can we improve the level of transparency uh, in our field? How much transparency should we have? 
uh, and so on, was to define it a little bit more precisely for our purposes. Uh, and this took place within an effort within the American Political Science Association uh, to create norms, actually starting with ethical norms for research transparency. And they created three dimensions by which one thinks about um, research transparency. The first is data transparency. Um, now the word data may rub some people the wrong way, so if it rubs you the wrong way, sometimes it rubs me the wrong way, uh, replace it with evidence when you see it. So data transparency or data access means that you have access to the evidence that the person made to advance an empirical claim. Uh, that could take, the, in the textual analysis, that can take the form of providing a quotation or providing a document. Uh, for quantitative scholars, that usually takes the form of providing a uh, quantitative data set. But here we're talking about uh, qualitative research. The second dimension is analytic transparency. So this is to explicate the link between that data or evidence and the descriptive or causal or interpretive conclusions that are drawn from it. So textual scholars, qualitative scholars, typically interpret each piece of data to reach a certain conclusion. Quantitative scholars do the same. All social scientists do. Uh, and so we need to explicate that link. An example of that would be an annotated footnote. Um, quantitative scholars typically do that through some kind of an algorithm which analyzes a large amount of data. And the third dimension is so-called procedural or process transparency. This is revelation of the processes used to collect, generate, or choose evidence theory or method. So those of you who are social scientists know that, of course, even if you know the data, you see the data somebody uses, and you see the analysis they make of that data, you want to know how they chose that particular data and not some other data to analyze those particular theories and not some other particular theories to analyze those analytical techniques and not other analytical techniques because that can fundamentally affect what conclusions they reach. So in the American Political Science Association, we concluded that these three dimensions were the dimensions on which you could uh, measure or assess the transparency of a piece of work. Now, what does this mean in the qualitative tradition? So quantitative scholars generally in social science have a better notion of what this means. They're more experienced at it. Uh, there is a tradition in the natural sciences and the quantitative sciences of making quantitative data sets available to other scholars. I see Simon Hicks in the back of the room here who does this regularly, um, of making algorithms uh, available that are used to analyze uh, those and explaining your research processes. In fact, in the natural sciences, often you see articles that are very short, three or four pages sometimes, and the additional materials that explain all the data and the algorithms are hundreds of pages long to provide that uh, background. So, but for qualitative research, what does this mean? So it's very important to ask this question because different research traditions and communities define transparently transparency differently. And we wouldn't want to impose the standards that quantitative scholars use wholesale onto qualitative or textual scholars. Um, any standards for a research community must be tailored to distinct epistemological structures 
and practical real-world concerns. What do I mean here? I mean that quantitative and qualitative scholars explain things in different ways and face real-world constraints on their research that are different. And let me explain these. First, the epistemological structure. Most qualitative political science takes a narrative form. Qualitative scholars tend to tell stories that are arrayed in a causal or temporal narrative. Very different, again, than quantitative research, which tends to have a data set which gets analyzed uh, as a whole. You typically see a few case studies or particular cases that are intensively analyzed. Um, the evidence takes the form of textual evidence, not statistics. And this is important. The analysis of the data is not done as a whole, or not solely done as a whole, but is linked to steps in that causal or temporal narrative. Those of you who are familiar with the research on social science methodology know that scholars like uh, Henry Brady, David Collier at Berkeley, or James Mahoney at Northwestern make a distinction between causal process observations and data set observations. That is to say, data that's arrayed in a single data set and data that is um, placed in a um, uh, narrative structure linked to different points in that structure. Um, so an appropriate starting point for thinking about qualitative research is something like the traditional discursive footnote. Normally, the way scholars have documented, made transparent what they do, is to provide discursive footnotes. They footnote an empirical point they want to make, and they cite something which supports it, and perhaps explain why that citation supports what they say, or provide a quotation or something like that. And this has this quality that it is linked to a particular point in a narrative, rather than being data that's archived somewhere else off in a data set the way that quantitative data is, which is why we need to think distinctively about qualitative research. The second point to keep in mind, uh, oh, yeah, important to keep in mind that this community of people that do this kind of research, narrative research in political science is enormous. Um, well over 50% of international relations scholars, which is the branch of political science I'm in and happens to be the only one for which I have statistics at hand, do this kind of qualitative work. And well over 90% of scholars do some of it. Okay? So um, this is a large community of people. Now, the other thing we need to keep in mind is that any research community, including these people who do qualitative work, face real-world research conditions that limit how much transparency is practical. If you're a researcher out there and you do archival work or you interview people um, and you document your work in a particular way, um, you cannot provide infinite amounts of documentation or explanation about why you do what you do. You're limited by a number of factors. And what are those factors? Well, the first is ethics, which is confidentiality and human subject concerns. If you do research, say, on uh, guerrilla warfare in Lebanon, 
or on the Chinese military, um, you are not going to get any information from anybody unless you offer them confidentiality. Because they're putting themselves at risk by giving you information. And that is governed by an agreement you make with them offering them human subject protection. You can't violate that agreement in order to offer confidentiality, so you need, uh, that takes precedence over any effort to provide confidentiality. But suppose you're somebody who cites books or articles or printed material. Then you're in the clear? No, not at all. Because there's intellectual property law. You can't just take infinite amounts of printed material and stick it into your footnotes because you're violating intellectual property law. So there have to be limits on how much of other people's intellectual property you can cite. And some of these are strict, like if you cite poetry, you're extremely limited in what you can cite. If you cite government documents, you have more leeway. So you need to take that, that into account. Third, logistics. Suppose you go into an archive and you look at 100,000 documents and you cite 50 of them. Do you have to put all 100,000 documents onto a website somewhere because that's what you looked at? Completely unrealistic. It would shut down everybody like Piers here is doing research uh, in, in, in libraries as an archivist. What's more, um, rights of first use. Suppose you collect those 100,000 documents, but you write an article on just 50 of them. You have to put your entire data set uh, in, and then anybody else can scoop you on that book you're going to write in five years with the rest of the data. That would violate anybody's incentive to comply with these kinds of rules, right? And finally, journal publishing formats. Uh, we can't come up with a set of rules that tell journals to do something completely different than what they're doing now. These are very serious constraints. So you might say, I think I'd love to live in a world where we just p make PDFs, scan PDFs of every document I look at, put it up on the web, and link my article to them so everybody knows everybody, everything I looked at. But for these reasons, you cannot do that. So if you want real-world rules about how transparent research is going to be, even just about data, you have to think about a compromise, a workable compromise between transparency and these kinds of concerns. Okay, so how are you going to do that? Okay, so this is where the rubber hits the road for social scientists, is people have thought about what you can do. Now let me talk about what we're doing now in political science and this is a little different than other disciplines, which is just conventional citation. You have a regular old footnote. What's wrong with that, you might say? You said before conventional footnotes is what qualitative scholars use. Why isn't that working? Um, so I'm going I'm to talk about conventional citation. I'm going to skip hyperlinks, which don't work anyway for pretty easily explicable reasons. Talk about archiving data, and then talk about what we're moving toward in the United States. Okay, so what's wrong with conventional citation, just footnotes, in political science? The first thing is, political science over the last 30 or 40 years has been taken over as a discipline by people who do quantitative work, who have, all, have, have changed the basic formatting rules for journals. Almost all the journals have shortened by somewhere between a third and a half the length of articles. It used to be, it was easy to publish an article that was 14 or 15,000 words. 
James, just this convinced international organization to publish an article that's 15,000 words long. I don't know how he did it, because I haven't seen anything like that in an international organization for a decade or so. So he must be a really good scholar. Um, but by and large, you can't get anything that's more than eight or maybe 10 published by anybody uh, these days. And you can't show your evidence or analysis as a qualitative scholar in that length of space. Secondly, we now have what are called scientific citations. So for those of you that uh, don't know what these are, you've probably seen them when you look at an academic publication. You don't have those beautiful footnotes at the bottom of the page that are discursive, that have the footnote and then a little discussion of what it says. You have a little parenthesis in the middle of the page that says Hicks, 1974, or 1994, he's too, he's too, he's too young for that, 1994, 234, okay? Now that is a formatting style for a world in which articles cite other articles. For a quantitative world, it doesn't suit a world where footnotes cite data or evidence, a qualitative world. Um, so you can't use them uh, for data transparency. But even if you can cite something in such a way that somebody knows where it is, it's not cost-effective to go look for it. Suppose there are 150 citations in an article. Um, many of them in political science, because we're a really lousy discipline in this regard, um, are so vague you can't figure out what to look for. Either there are no page numbers, which is distressingly common in political science, or there are too many. People say, well, this is a chapter of a book which supports whatever empirical claim uh, I'm making. Um, or the it's a citation to data which is unavailable even though it's not confidential and there's no reason why it should be unavailable. Moreover, many are just plain wrong. So my graduate students go through this kind of work. They have replicated this kind of work. And what they find is a lot of the citations in major political science works are just plain wrong. And what's more, um, the more essential they are to the central claim that somebody makes, the more likely they are to be wrong, which tells you something. Um, the other 70% are also, in practice, too costly to access. That is to say, sure, you could go to a university library, or you could go to a foreign archive, or you could go somewhere and look stuff up, because very little in the world is online, but in practice, people don't. And the result is, there is very little debate in political science over qualitative empirical results. Very unlike law or history in this regard. And what's more, there is no requirement or room for analytic or process transparency. Even if I went to the library and I looked up that citation and I saw what the evidence were, was, I don't know exactly why the person cited that piece of evidence to support that point. And one of the things we know from our interpretivist colleagues in social science is that data requires interpretation. It's not obvious why a particular citation supports a particular point. So two conclusions come from the unsatisfactory state of a discipline like political science. The first is political science doesn't have much serious empirical debate, and that's a real problem. And secondly, any enhancement has to be digital. Right? Because remember, we're working within current journal restrictions. 
We've got these word limits. We've got these scientific citations. We can't just wave a wand and say, let's get rid of current journals and how they work. So what are we going to do? Okay. So um, we can't hyperlink to things. And the short answer there is most of the stuff we cite isn't online. We can talk more about that, but it just isn't. So what about archiving everything? Um, stick everything you cite in an archive somewhere, and then everybody will know what it is. Bad idea. Um, first of all, what makes this attractive to a social scientist is it might seem to solve the problem of cherry picking. That if you cite 50 documents, and you claim to have selected them out of a large bunch of documents, and you want people to check whether you selected fairly and you didn't cherry pick those documents, the way to show that is to put all the documents someplace in an archive. Um, but in fact, that's completely unrealistic. Think about somebody in an archive. They go into the archive. What should they put? And they, they did some archival research. What is the background number of documents that they should stick somewhere to show that they have fairly chosen? The number of things they cited, the number of things they analyzed closely, the number of things they copied, the number of things they looked at, the number of things they could have looked at. Nobody really knows. And if you get to a number that really protects against cherry picking, you're getting to thousands or hundreds of thousands of documents. It's a very unrealistic prospect. Um, what's more, you can't just archive everything, right? Because secondary sources, newspaper clippings, interviews, even archival documents don't belong to you. Now, strictly speaking, of course, if you go look at British law or EU law or American law, government documents belong to you. But James and I were just talking. He does real archival research now, and I've done it in the past. And often, archival research is a subtle set of discussions between you and the archivist. And if you decide, even if it's uh, legally within your rights, to take 1,000 documents from the French National Archives and put them online someplace, good luck ever getting anything from those people again. They will just decide that from now on you will look at one document a day very slowly. And no amount of chocolate to the archivist, and no matter, it will get you any more than that. Um, so the fact is, the world is just much more restrictive, um, even when it doesn't appear to be. Um, and finally, this doesn't do anything about analytic transparency. Remember, we want to know how people interpret documents, not just what they are. So this is a good strategy if you have a small number of documents that are uh, non-confidential, non-copyrighted. So for example, I'm now doing a set of interviews on this project on opera that was alluded to. I've got 140 of them in 10 countries. They're all done in such a way that in 15 years they're going to be public. I think it's very important that they be public. Um, but that's a very exceptional case, um, given what, the way people research. So what have we come up to, with that solves these problems? And that is something called active citation, which are digitally enabled citations l linked to annotated source, source excerpts in an appendix. Now, the simple way to think about this is it's a way to uh, get back to the kind of citation that you still see in legal journals um, or in some historical journals, or actually, interestingly, in journals of classics, that has many of the qualities we talked about. 
So here's a citation from the Yale on law, Online law, law Review. You click on footnote 6, you get a quotation from the source, you get a citation, and you even can click through to the source itself. Um, and you might add to that, in many legal publications, you even have an annotation that says, this source shows X, Y, and Z. So um, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. But what exactly does it look like? OK, this is the status quo. You have the main text, some kind of a claim, and a citation. And that's where it stops. Okay, That's what modern um, citation practice is. And we leave this completely unchanged. Okay? What will be changed is the addition of an appendix to articles. And in that appendix, each citation of a contested claim will have an entry. And that entry will have an excerpt from the source. The nice thing about an excerpt is it's legal. Okay. You can't take a document and copy it. But if you're acting for nonprofit scholarly purposes, you're allowed to cite 50 or 100 words of almost anything. So you're legal. And if it's uh, something that's sensitive, for example, something that's subject to confidentiality or something, uh, you can make it anonymous. You can summarize it. You can almost always find a way to provide some information about it. An annotation that explains why this source excerpt supports this claim. A full citation, so if you are the kind of scholar that uses databases, you can just push a button, download that into a database, and you have this information. And if it's legal and possible, you can put a scan or a link to a full source there. It's that simple. Um, now, there's only one issue that's outstanding here. What about the, what I call process or procedural transparency issues? You might say, that's all very well. But you could just choose particular documents to make your point, cherry pick them, and analyze them. What about that issue of how you select them? So the very first um, entry in this appendix will be a discussion of those issues. Okay. It's not a perfect solution, but at least it makes it better. All right, let me give you an example so you can see how this works. So how many of you, did any of you see the movie Lincoln? See the movie Lincoln, anybody? Okay, so this is a kind of American example. I'm sorry, but Lincoln's a big guy for us, so you know. Um, so there's this great moment in the movie Lincoln where Tommy Lee Jones, who's playing uh, a representative in the United States named Thaddeus Stevens, comes home, walks into his parlor, and says to his common-law wife, um, who's a mulatto, uh, says about the passage of the 13th Amendment to the American Constitution, which outlawed slavery, this is the greatest measure of the 19th century passed by corruption aided and abetted by the purest man in America. The purest man in America is Lincoln. Um, and so the claim is, um, here's this great measure, but even great measures need corrupt politics um, to be passed. Okay, now where did this come from? When I go to movies, I always wonder, like, what's the source on that, right? That shows you what a wonky qualitative person I am. Okay? But I'm sure you do that, too, so don't laugh. Um, so, uh, 
So this is according to Steven Spielberg, who got it from Fawn Brody, who's actually Bernard Brody, the famous nuclear theorist's wife, for those of you who are strategic studies people, who got it from a popular lecturer in 1898 named James Scoville. So suppose I write an article about this called, Is you know, Steven Spielberg's Movie True? So I could have a text, and the text of the article would say, in Spielberg's recent movie, you know, Tommy Lee Jones played this role, and he said this thing, and so on, and I'd have a footnote. And in a modern article, that's where it would stop, right? And you'd kind of wonder, well, I wonder if that's true, I wonder if it's not true, I wonder what he's telling me, I wonder what he's not telling me, right? But in active citation, this is live. So you click on that, and you get the active citation, okay? So here is the textual excerpt from that article by James Scoville, in 1898, which is actually the first reference um, to this. And it's actually rather interesting to read um, because you can see that he knows a lot about the detail of Thaddeus Stevens, that he spent a lot of time with Thaddeus Stevens, including gambling, um, and about the reasons why they swapped votes and all that kind of thing uh, at the time. And he does mention the common law wife um, but doesn't link the things at all in the quotation, right? Then you can have an annotation, and the annotation mentions this quotation was written 35 years after the event in question by a man who was making his living being a popular lecturer about Lincoln and whose past was itself filled with corruption, so we're not 100% sure that what he says is true, but then it's full of specific details that do seem to be true, and he was there at the time, so you can draw your own conclusions about how true what Mr. Scoville says might be. You have a complete citation, and because this is 100 years ago and it's in the public domain, I can actually put up a scan of the document itself. This took me about you know, 10 minutes to do because you just go to uh, you know, find this thing and just zap it in. Um, and there you go. Now notice that if you really care about why whether Thaddeus Stevens actually said this and whether he said it in his parlor, which if he did, Scoville would have no way of knowing, um, you need all the things I talked about before, right? You need the text. That's data transparency. You need an interpretation of the text in historical context so you can understand what you should believe and what you shouldn't. And you need to know about the selection of the text. Why am I citing this thing 35 years after the fact? Well, it turns out because that's the very first time it was mentioned by anybody. Okay? So, okay. So the last section, what I want to ask is, suppose we went to this system where every time you say something in a textual article, you have to provide this kind of evidence. What would it do for us as qualitative scholars and would it be worth it? Because it seems like some work. So you have to ask yourself, is this something you want to do? Okay. So the first thing, there's four things it does for us. The first is, it's the ethical thing to do. Now I know arguments that it's the right thing to do are not usually terribly persuasive for people, but we are scholars in a community of people that owe to each other the responsibility of being part of a common conversation. And we do owe the ethical responsibility to try to be transparent. That is what distinguishes us from political speech um, or even some kinds of journalistic speech. Second, 
Qualitative research will be richer and more rigorous, and this will help us appreciate, debate, extend, reuse, and improve and transcend current research. So remember I said there's very little debate and discussion about the correctness or the, or the rigor or uh, what political scientists say. Very different than a field like law, where people immediately debate the empirical veracity of claims made, even very detailed claims about law. And one reason is that those claims in law are transparent and claims in political science are not. So we're giving qualitative researchers more space without changing the word limit one bit. Um, we're giving everybody one-click access to the data, the analysis, and the methodology. These become public goods. Anybody, any of you who decides to write an article now about anything, and you go do an afternoon of research, you don't just get a bunch of articles with people's claims about things, you get a bunch of sources. You get a bunch of interpretation of those sources. Um, so even if you're doing uh, just a paper for a class, but certainly if you're doing scholarship, um, you're in a much better position um, to begin your own research, and you're in a much better position to criticize or appreciate anybody else's work um, you can tell what seems fishy to you, what you want to follow up more. Right now, all you're faced with is 100 footnotes, and uh, nobody really even knows what they should follow up on. Um, and this will lead everybody, at least to a certain extent, to police themselves by putting enough effort into this qualitative work to provide a prima facie plausible argument. So let me give you an example. At least in America, the modal dis dissertation in political science now is the so-called multi-method dissertation. So what's a multi-method dissertation? This is a dissertation where somebody has, in chapter two, a formal model using game theory of a phenomenon. In chapters three and four, a quantitative analysis of this. And in chapters five, six, and seven, three case studies. The way they allocate their time in graduate school is as follows. They spend a year on their formal model because they know that in 10 seconds in a job talk, they could be crucified if, they, if somebody finds out there's a mistake in the formal model. They spend 18 months on their statistical analysis because they know in 20 seconds in the job talk, they would be finished if somebody finds a problem with the quantitative analysis. And they write the three qualitative case studies after they get their job. That is how academics works. Okay? And the reason is because there, are n there is no transparency. And where, and where there's no transparency, there are no standards. Okay? What this does is forces people to reallocate their time. Um, and reallocate their time in a way consistent with actually how useful the analysis is. Um, third point. Qualitative scholars can better demonstrate, validate, improve, and legitimate their unique excellence and expertise inside the discipline. So a lot of people complain that qualitative scholars are undervalued in the profession, uh, that it's going more quantitative over time. Um, and a lot of people have conspiracy theories about this, um, that quantitative scholars have it out for qualitative scholars, and this may very well be true. Uh, but the solution to it is not uh, to complain about other people. The solution is to build up a mode of analysis that is transparently rich and rigorous enough that it is inimitable. 
Um, and this is a way uh, to do that. Um, so once you can see what somebody's data is like, where it comes from, what somebody's evidence is, all of a sudden you have much more incentive to invest in things like area studies, languages, historical knowledge, even digital ability, things uh, that other people can't replicate. I was talking with James about this, that uh, there's a big difference between the attitude that quantitative scholars have when a qualitative political scientist enters the room and when a historian or a lawyer enters the room. Because the historian or lawyer, they believe, somewhat naively, might have a document which could disprove what they're saying. The qualitative political scientist, they know even if they have the document, it's not transparent, so they don't need to worry about it. Um, so you need to create a more transparent environment in which these things matter. Um, and it also permits us to acknowledge who's better and who's not so good in the field. This is a cynical and crass point, but people um, respond in academia to opportunities to be rewarded for doing things better. And one of the secrets of quantitative work moving ahead in recent decades is that it has rewarded people who transparently uh, are good at it. What's more, if we require these kinds of active citations, you're going to need people to decide that they're real. If a journal gets a set of citations uh, which are in Chinese translated into English and there are 50 of them at the end of an article, no editor is going to publish that unless somebody who speaks Chinese and knows something about China has taken a look at it. Because the editor's nightmare is always that something phony appears in the journal. Now, the only editor's nightmare that most editors in multi-method journals and social science have is that some equation will get into the journal that isn't legit. So they have lots of people who are mathematical experts who are on the boards of journal largely to make sure that doesn't happen. Now they're going to need people who are also regional experts. Final point. Qualitative social science will gain more credibility and legitimacy outside of academia. Everybody in social science is under pressure to make things transparent. Even if you don't think it's good for you inside the field, um, the people who are in other fields, like law or history or even public policy, increasingly have these kinds of standards or have long had these standards. And, um, would have more respect for political science uh, if they had them as well. Um, but importantly, funders. So increasingly, it's hard to get grants if you do not have a transparency strategy for your work. And increasingly, this is applied to qualitative research as well as quantitative research. So even if you don't think this is a good idea at all, if you want to raise money from anybody, you're going to have to have it. So final point, you might say, yes, this is all very well, Professor Morovchek, wonderful idea, great, but it's so costly, I don't want to do it. Some people in this room have told me this. So here is my uh, uh, response to that. Um, first, some political scientists already do it. So here's an example of something that looks very much like what we would have uh, in such a footnote, um, the citation, quotations, discussion of how it was interpreted. And this comes from a recent book by Thomas Christensen. He's one of our leading Chinese, China scholars in political science, a colleague of mine, who also, by the way, uh, just a few years before this, served two years as deputy assistant secretary in the U.S. State Department in charge of 
uh, China and Korea. So this is not a guy who spends 100% of his time uh, on academia. He does a lot of things, but he finds time to do this and do it well. So it is possible. And he didn't have research assistants do it for him. Um, in fact, most qualitative political scientists want more space, not less. You talk to ethnographers, you talk to people who do historical research, their problem is not how do I fill the space, their problem is how do I get more space so I can show the kind of stuff we want to give them a chance to show. In many ways, this is a back to the future proposal. We're simply permitting political scientists to do qualitative work to get back to the way qualitative work was done about 20 or 30 years ago that pre pre permitted this kind of conversation to take place, or the way work is done, particularly in law, but also in much of history, and increasingly outside of academia altogether. Um, and uh, except we're going to use digital means to achieve it, which is going to make it much more efficient and easy for you to achieve it. Remember, this is only contestable empirical claims. So if you think about the average political science article, that's probably 40 or 50 citations. Um, not everything you cite. If you cite um, some theoretical work by somebody that claims something, you don't need to do this. And what you do is up to you. You decide how long the quotation is, how long the annotation is, and above all, um, modern technology makes this pretty easy. Historians now routinely go into archives with cameras, with scanners. Uh, electronic technology makes it easy to manipulate text and move it around. And it will make it easier and easier over time. And we allow journals to keep formats the way they are. Um, so this is a very modest proposal. So this is happening in the United States. So we've spent years doing all kinds of stuff. I'm going to skip over this. Uh, developed software. Here's this wonderful software we had. You can plug it into Word. Looks very fancy. Um, but what I want to focus on is this, that 25 journals have already signed up starting in January 2016 to do it. So political science, starting in the United States, is going to move in this direction. And there's increasingly discussion in interdisciplinary fora, like the Social Science Research Council. Uh, we're working with historians. We're working with sociologists. We're working with public policy experts, uh, lawyers, lots of other people about how to do this in an interdisciplinary way. This is the future. Why? Why is it the future? Because it's what you see everywhere around you. Okay? This is natural science. As I said, an article that appears here, like this article about why the DNA of polar bears, it's four pages long. The supplementary materials that you click on, hundreds of pages long. All the data, all the pre research pro protocols, everything in there. You read a policy analysis somewhere, it's full of, see up there, PDF. Um, four different documents. Journalism. Journalism everywhere is now interlinked to data sources uh, all the time. And nobody believes it if it isn't. Um, blogs. 
who has a blog that isn't linked to everything all the time? Even classified intelligence estimates and briefings. Of course, I can't show you one because they're classified. But actually nowadays, classified agencies increasingly have footnotes in them that drill down to primary sources. Why? Let's say you're the CIA in the United States, and you sent a memo to the, U the US government, say, around 2002, 2003, about nuclear materials in Niger. And that was used to get the United States to intervene in Iraq, and they blamed you. CIA says, never again that, OK? We're going to send you a document that has that information and says, and we got it from the following source, and you decide if you think this source is reliable. Everybody's going uh, in this direction. Ironically, academics who study politics are less transparent than the people they study, even the super secret agencies that they study. That cannot remain the case, and it won't. And so any of you that do this kind of research in government, in a policy think tank, or in academia, your world is going to look like this. Um, so what we need to do is try to figure out how to do this in a way that's maximally respectful to the kind of qualitative work that we want to see done. And I'm open to your suggestions about how it's best to do that. Thanks very much for your patience. All right. Well, that, uh, thank you, thank you um, uh, Professor Marovchik. That was, that was really fascinating. I, when, when, just in this last point, I sort of have this image of George Kennan sending a long telegram, but now with active citations as well about just what the Russians are up to. So, um, it would have been a short telegram with long photos. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant. So I think I will let you handle the, um, the, the questions and answers. We have people going around with, with microfilms. Uh, I just want to remind everyone that the, the idea here is that we're going to ultimately, um, uh, as long as the technology works, we're going to turn this into a podcast. So you just want to be aware that um, you might be actively footnoted in the, in, in, in the future. Um, the other thing I'll say is, as I say, I'll let you kind of handle it, but I, I might help to manage just a little bit because one of the things actually your uh, colleague Bob Cohen taught me is the importance of having a very well-rounded discussion. So I'm going to try to make sure we have relative balance among different... Why don't you do it? Okay, well, that's what I'll do. Okay, so I'll, I will do it. Um, I'll, keep a, I'll keep a cue and we'll try to get students at different levels and male-female and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, all right. Um, I'll start with my friend Julia Gray in international relations. I like that. We're like at a well caught conversation. I'll start with my buddy over there. It's really good. This is actually appropriate because I have a distributional question, in fact. So this is sort of a, you know, in keeping with your the stuff that you've done before, this is sort of an elite top down proposal, right? So and it's starting with the journals. So you're saying that the way that we disseminate this is by requiring that the top journals in the field mandate this, right? And I wondered what you thought about the distributional consequences of that are going to be, both in terms of distributional across class of university, like, um, you know, the wealth and uh, kind of resources of different universities across the country and across the world, as well as across rank, um, the types of, you know, faculty and uh, junior faculty and students uh, that are going to be able to actually do this. Um, I can think of other distributional consequences as well. You mentioned the fact that, 
you know, in graduate training, often people spend a year on the formal model, a year on the stats, and not much time on the dissertation, it's, uh, not much time on the, on, on the case. So what you're proposing, just as an example of this, is going to mean that the person would probably spend an extra year doing the type of thing that you require, which is great in theory, um, but how does one reconcile that with the paucity of resources in a lot of universities, um, the coming revolution and the tightening of university budgets, then <laughs> um, the drying up of academic jobs? Um, I mean, I can see real consequences for this where only you know, people at a certain level of university with a certain amount of resources or people at a certain stage in their career are able to do this. They're the ones that then get access to the top journals. Um, anything below that ends up being, being shut out. Um, so I wonder what you think about, yeah, the distributional consequences. Do we answer now? Or? Is it a norm to take several questions or to go? It's up to me. It's up to you. Uh, sure. Well, um, so uh, I, I don't think people will uh, um, necessarily take an extra year, um, or maybe uh, they may. Uh, what, what I think is more likely is that they will change the way they specialize, so that uh, I think you're going to see less across the board, um, you know, triple multi-method dissertations. And in fact, you're already starting to see at Princeton, I don't know if we're an indicator of the rest of the world, fewer people doing really intensive formal modeling and more people doing qualitative methods. And it's evening out. Um, so I just think people are going to specialize in things that they feel more comfortable doing. I think there'll still be multi-method dissertations. It just won't be quite as multi. Um, so uh, and I think every method reaches at some point in levels of development diminishing returns. So people will. Uh, trade off a little more sensibly. Um, the distributional or sociological consequences for the field are complicated, um, but I do think they cut various ways. So the implication of your question is sort of people at lower level universities or with uh, fewer research assistants are going to have a tougher time complying with these kinds of things. Um, truth is, I don't know many qualitative people who really trust research assistants to do things to, like write their annotations. <laughs> Um, so um, I actually think that it will reward people who really want to work at something. But I think there are a lot of, and there's a certain sense in which any person at a lower level university is, you know, uh, disadvantaged. But I think there's subtle ways in which this cuts both ways. So let me just name one. And that is, I think people at, at less prestigious universities are often... Um, and younger scholars are often um, disadvantaged in debates when they take on big names, um, particularly when the terrain, as it often is in qualitative methods, is kind of murky. So, you know, you're going to take on John Mearsheimer. Well, you know, like, good luck with that. Um, it's hard. Um, if it, it, and so um, in this case, what happens is that you shift that to a debate much more about evidence, about a certain, it's, a, it's sort of a debate with John Mearsheimer at one remove, right? And, and so I found actually when I go around and speak that the people who are most enthusiastic about this tend to be younger scholars uh, because they have the sweat equity and they feel like I've really got this data and I'd really like to show people that it's true what I say. Um, and often people who want to take on something big and want the legitimacy 
of the method to help them do it. And uh, I, I once had a student come into my office and say, you know, I think you, as a qualitative scholar, are really undemocratic. And I said, what, what kind of statement is that? But you know, students say strange things to you. And, and he said, no, 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 listen. He said, I looked at that book, The Choice for Europe. It could take me my entire graduate career to go through all those footnotes and figure out all this stuff. But in my quantitative classes, in the second semester, we replicate articles that were published last year. I can go get the data set off the shelf and go after those people. And I know what the rules are. It's a fair fight. And I think that's absolutely right. I'm bunkered in. The only people who have ever criticized me, um, they're wrong, by the way, but, but nonetheless, uh, for, for empirical issues, uh, in the choice for Europe, in any kind of serious way, with one exception, are historians. Because the only people that know enough, right? Political scientists can't do it because you don't give them a leg up enough to do it. There's not a fair, fair even playing field. And this creates uh, a much more even playing field between your random critic out there who wants to take on somebody who got lucky and got something published someplace and that person who's established, the first mover. And I think that's a good thing, and it makes that playing field essentially empirical, which I also think is fairer than saying, I'm taking on John Mearsheimer theoretically, which, you know, you're never going to be John Mearsheimer theoretically. All right. Do you want to come in on this? or? Okay, yes. Yeah, so so um, Cheryl, and then next I'll go to some student, to a student. So. Um, I, I certainly endorse, I mean, the, the basic stance, and I, I don't have any problem with that. But I do just want to make a couple of points. And one is, um, I think that you're characterizing the dissemination of academic knowledge a little bit in um, uh, perhaps a slightly skewed way. That is, you're assuming that all the dissemination is through journal articles. A lot is, but a lot of very good research is done in monographs, in books. Mm -hmm. And therein comes the point where you make where you had the slide that um, many want more space. So what happens when you have this sort of research that requires archival detail and a lot of specificity, a lot of defense of the means and the methodology and so on? Well, one of the alternatives is monographs, and those increasingly are also available electronically. And I just think that ought to be brought into um, the discussion as well. Just two other points where I thought it would be useful, and I, perhaps you have discussed this with librarians. It has to do with the access to materials. Now, I'm sure most people have clink, clicked on links and found that, oh dear, they're not a subscriber, right? They do not have access to this. Um, even very good universities and other disciplines will not have access to certain articles, certain materials. So there is one issue where, and that increasingly might be a problem when you have um, commercialized databases. Uh, so it's not just sort of journals that might require subscribe, you know, a subscription, but also large uh, databases that require a more institutional uh, subscription. Now that's quite a significant hurdle, and I have, I have run across that quite significantly. Last point is just a technological point. Again, thinking at least from 
uh, the, the longer term sort of librarian type of approach is what happens in, to these links in 20 years time, 30 years time, 50 years time? The approach assumes stable and ongoing links, which I think is a little bit problematic. Okay, I th um, it's probably my mistake. I think you misunderstand the proposal, right? We're not linking to anything outside the article. The links are inside the article. Links are from a, a citation in the article to an entry in the appendix in the article. Okay? Optionally, if you feel like you have the rights to do so and you feel like doing so, you can link to an outside document. That's entirely optional. It's not essential to the proposal. Okay? For precisely the reason you state. That's why I, I passed over it briefly. But the idea of using hyperlinks to outside sources as a basic form of transparency is totally dysfunctional. Okay? It's totally dysfunctional, A, because most things that we cite are not online at all, and B, because most links are not stable to an extent that's really extraordinary if, if, in case you don't know that. But, I mean, most links are not, you know, within 10 years, an extraordinary percentage of links are not stable. So you just can't use that. So you have to reproduce. But if you reproduce, then you're limited by, you know, uh, copyright laws and human subject right laws and so on. That's why something like active citation, which says we will take a quote with an annotation, we will put it in an appendix, and then anywhere the article goes, the appendix goes, right? It's part of the article. So, so now, of course, if the article disappears, the appendix disappears, but if the article disappears, why do we want the appendix, right? Because the appendix is there to make the article transparent. So, um, so actually, active citation is designed to avoid precisely that problem. Um, now, um, as for books, um, books are a real issue. Um, they are not a solution to the transparency problem as it currently stands because um, many books in political science are also um, dismally cited and documented. Um, but, uh, as my example of the dissertation suggested, but um, we haven't gotten to the point where we figured out how to deal with some of the practical issues of books. Uh, books, unlike journals, do not have any, uh, uh, even to the minimum extent that journals do, a standardized format. So electronic books are, as those of you know who use electronic books, a mess. Um, so it's, it's hard enough to even find the footnote or the page number on electronic books. So the idea we're going to add another level to it that's got a footnote in it, uh, an active footnote in it, is, is like mind-boggling. And... Um, and what's more, it's a much bigger logistical ask for anybody that's doing it. So what we're trying to do is get this established for articles, um, and then we'll see what we can do about books. There are people who have published books with active citations for even major presses, like Cambridge University Press. It can be done, and it's very useful for some cases. Um, but that's like the next step. Okay, uh, a, a student next, if we could. I'm going to go to the back. Yes, first of all, thanks a lot for this insightful talk. Um, I wondered whether, could, whether you could comment further on a tension you described, basically, which is that we have, on the one hand, um, a majority of qualitative researcher in our field, political science, and on the other hand, um, our research culture is very much influenced by um, quantitative research. And in this regard, I have two questions, namely, first, um, how do you explain this fact? Because, after all, like, careers are based on publications, so if we have this quantitative culture, culture, how do qualitative research still can have a career, and how long do you think will they survive? And the second question is, um, 
whether you think, in fact, that this new mode of citations is able to shift this overall culture in political science we have found over the last 25 years? Um, I don't know why it's taken place. Um, and um, I, I think quantitative people tend to have a more coherent view of what they want. Um, being being um, you know, a qualitative person is a little like being a member of the Labor Party. You know, it's, it's wonderful, except everybody else who's in the party with you. you know, so um, uh, it's a disparate group of people, and they don't agree on what to, uh, uh, what to do. Um, quantitative people have a, uh, you know, they disagree too, but on this methodological issues, they tend to have a firmer idea of what they want, and they've been successful at pushing things in a certain direction in this regard. But the real question is what you do about it. Um, and um, look, if you want to promote qualitative work in the field, you basically have three options. Um, so one is to create little sort of um, hive-off little, um, uh, you know, neighborhoods of, of, of qualitative work and just live in your little bailiwick there. Um, and I think that's a losing strategy over the long term. It's unacademic, and you give up the central terrain of the discipline to somebody else, and it, 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 it's just, it doesn't appeal to me at all. The second, which some people have adopted, is to complain about the state of things, to complain that it's either epistemologically bad or it isn't policy relevant enough or something like this. And you'll never win that debate inside of academia because the sociology of academia is deliberately designed not to let arguments like this isn't policy relevant win, right? As it should be, as Max Weber pointed out to us long ago. So therefore, you need something that's going to improve qualitative work in such a way that makes it more defensible as an academic project. And that's what this does, right? And it does it without um, specifically requiring people to do this or that rigorous thing, but instead saying, be transparent, and if you're transparent, your virtues will reinforce themselves over time, and your comparative advantages will become clearer. Call me an idealist, but I believe that. Great. Uh, we'll come up, come up here, and then Simon has been very patient. Um, Subsequently. Thank you. So my name is Ines. I'm a PhD candidate here in the IR department. Um, and first of all, I'm pretty much sold. Um, I think, for instance, EndNotes or Sotero are actually um, sort of mechanisms that allow for this to happen quite easily. However, I have to, I guess I'm wondering, also with respect to my own research, which is on the Europeans' response to the crisis in Libya back in 2011, mm -hmm. To which degree this is actually applicable, especially to the field of security and diplomacy, because I believe there are there is certain information that is simply not, I'm going to say, linkable, or um, which you can simply not make that transparent as easily um, right. as other information. So, so I think different research communities, and I mean that not just you know qualitative and quantitative, but different topics will have different levels of prevailing transparency. So if you study, um, you know, um, mafia. the mafia, yes, so there's a great example that came up with quantitative researchers where um, there was a guy who collected data on the, um, the mafia in Italy. And one of the quantitative journals just said, we refuse to publish this research because this person won't make the data transparent. Right? Now, my view is that's totally wrong. Right? That's not the right strategy. What you should say is, well, we understand the legitimate human subject reasons for not making this transparent, and we're going we're gonna to work with that. Which was, or we're going to find a way, technologically, which can be done with quantitative data, to make it workable 
even though um, uh, you know, the people know, know how to do that with medical data and so on, so this is doable. So what I think will happen also, though, besides, so you may be just in an area where the prevailing standards will be less transparent. People will summarize information rather than stating it verbatim. Or, but I also think that political scientists have been a little bit lazy. Okay, It's very easy when you work on a topic like that and, and, and to, to say the easy thing to do is to give everybody complete confidentiality. But there are a lot of things in between complete confidentiality and total transparency. There's anonymity. There's, trans, there's confidentiality now, but publicity in 15 years. Um, there's transparency about some aspects of the interview, but not other aspects of the interview. There's, in fact, a trade-off, right? Transparency is one virtue. Getting people to speak is another virtue. And we want to balance those things. But there's no incentive right now in the profession to make a sensible balance between these things um, because we don't really have any incentive to be more open because we can't cite this stuff, right? So what this will encourage people to do is come up with a better balance. And that doesn't mean there won't be areas, you know, studying Chinese military officers, whatever it is, where, where it remains more or less as it is. Um, although you see from Thomas Christensen, you can still do a lot. Um, but, it, but it does mean that I think people will come up with a lot of clever solutions and will push the envelope uh, a little bit and try different strategies, and that would be a good thing. It seems there's a kind of motif here, right? The perfect is the enemy of the good. And, you know, because it can't be perfect, we're just not going to do anything. Um, Simon? Yeah, Andy, I'm completely sold. Um, I moved from being a historian to being a a quantitative political scientist. Um, I'm very supportive of what you're doing. Uh, The question I wanted to ask was about your views on some of the latest moves in the on the quantitative side um, and how that might actually lead to even further development in what you're suggesting in the following sense. Um, so one of the issues in a lot of survey-based or experimental research is pre-registration. Yes. Um, and could this help you get around the idea, get around the cherry-picking or potential allegations of selection bias? So, so the idea for pre-registration is uh, to, get a, to get away from accusations of, well, this is just data phishing, or afterwards you really just collected the data, ran as many gazillion types of regression models you possibly could so that you could eventually find that one supposedly causal claim and afterwards you then get a paper published and you write your theory post-talk and blah, blah, blah. So, so pre-registration would say, here's my research design, this is what I'm going to estimate with this research design and this is what you're then posting up on Dataverse and, or this sort of thing. So could this also be an element of the qualitative debate right. in terms of you pre-registering I'm going to go to this archive. Here's what I'm going to do in terms of how I'm going to select the sources when I get there, this sort of stuff. Um, so I'm, I, I, I've thought of some about this, and I'm going to have to think about it more because I'm involved in an SSRC effort, and one of my partners in this is McCartan Humphreys, who's like a true believer in pre-registration, as are some of the other experimental people I've been at conferences where I present. I have to say for qualitative work and to some extent for experimental work, I'm not sold. Um, And I'm not sold because I think, and this best is the enemy of the good, philosophy, I think that the debate about pre-registration has has not come to what seems to me to be a reasonable equilibrium point, that there are real trade-offs. And they're they're much more obvious if you look at the qualitative work. So let's just take somebody that interviews. Um, There are, of course, things where I would want to pre-register. So, for example, I think of somebody who did a study of the 
of Russian bureaucracy, and they selected very carefully the people ex ante that they who they would look at, and they wanted a certain distribution and so on. But the standard way you interview when you want to find out like what happened in 2008 in you know Putin's bureaucracy is you go there and you know five people, and these five people convince five other people to talk to you, and nobody talks to you if they don't know that somebody else signed off on you, and you don't know who those people are going to be before the fact. And this is just the way it's done. So it's only ex ante that you try to make an argument or shift your strategy to come up with something that's um, uh, representative of what your theoretical priors were. So you can give a kind of research design, a kind of loose form of what you call pre-registration. We all make students do this. But anybody who comes back just having executed their plan probably hasn't worked hard enough to really be creative. And I think being in the archives is much like that too. I mean, the archives are just bewildering. You know, I mean, you get there and they're just a mess. And you find stuff in really unexpected places. And I think that that, which, that aspect of it, that the world is just full of opportunities to learn that are sometimes fundamental, um, is lost in this pre-registration um, view. Um, and that's not true for all research, but it's true for a lot. So. Um, I do think that in the process portion, you should report what you initially tried to do, and potentially we should document that in some firm way. But I would be exactly. So you know, you have a whole chat. Right. Doesn't end up in the book because it's probably Right. But no, no, no. We do. But I'm hesitant. I'm worried that if we do this, the subtle discursive pressure will too firmly favor those people who just execute what they initially said they were going to do and less the people who were creative in the field because it's just harder to defend. And that um, makes me nervous. And it makes me nervous because I see how my colleagues who are unbelievably smart and interesting and engaged scholars talk about it on the experimental side. And I go, this just sounds to me one-sided. Um, so, I would add on that, just the historical thing, the smoking gun is the best bit of history, and it's something that you ex never anticipate, right? So you start think thinking you're going to look for one thing, and then you find the smoking gun over here, and so the best history will never be pre-registered, right? But, yeah. um, okay, so we have a good mix so far, which is wonderful. Um, I think there's a, a gentleman in the back who's been, been patient. This is your pre-registration plan here? This is my pre-registration plan. <laughs> Hi, yes, I'm a master's student. Um, I think that it's a great idea, and I can see that it's really going to be um, something that uh, becomes more popular, and I think that, yeah, I, I, I can't see why it isn't uh, so already. Um, but I wonder that, um, from what you're saying, it sounds like that perhaps you've, you've perhaps... Um, prematurely given up on some of the um, other options. And I wondered, isn't it also a good idea to have this plus greater open access, greater repositories, archives? I think that, I mean, for instance, with archives, they've served us pretty well for the last 5,000 years. We've got a pretty good archive of stuff. Why can't, why can't it work in the future? Um, right. Have you given up on 
those options? Um, no, I mean, I'm certainly in favor of archives. We're not getting rid of archives. The question is whether the material which you recollect in a article is archived. But some of the stuff you collect in an archive for an article is going to be new. Um, and so I'm involved in a project now where I'm doing, you know, hundreds of interviews. And I feel like, I mean, I put it even more strongly than you, I don't just feel that it's important for transparency reasons that people know what it is that my interview subject said. I think sometimes it's a kind of, I know this sounds kind of corny, but a sacred duty of social scientists to create data about things for which data doesn't exist. And I think forward 50 or 100 years, and I think, you know, I'm working on something for which nobody's bothered to go interview people about this. But in 50 or 100 years, you know, we think back 50, 100 years, and we think, oh, here's these wonderful interviews somebody did in 1870, or these wonderful trove of documents. How lucky we are that this was there, right? So I think, to the, I always think of the person in 50 or 100 years, and I think, I want this to be there for them, because somehow nobody else is doing this particular thing. And I don't know why they're going to care about it, or even whether they're going to care about it, but it's my duty to provide it for them. So yes, I completely believe that's true. But I think as a practical matter that uh, that is going to be a relatively small minority of cases of things, articles that are written in social science. Um, and um, I also think that it is often going to be a secondary rather than a primary transparency strategy because these other barriers of intellectual property or human subject concerns or logistics will get in the way of immediately providing all that data available. But yes, I do think that's, I do think that's true. You're absolutely right. I'll, I'll stop jumping in, but I, I, you know, the, uh, the historians would say, look, the, the starting point is archives are constructed. We think of archives as buildings with archivists who like chocolate, and there's a lot of truth to that. But the other thing here, which about the process transparency and the analytic transparency that is a part of this initiative, is to say, look, I went to this thing which is a constructed archive. There are documents that are missing. There are voices that are silenced. Those silenced voices, those guns that don't, sm don't smoke, the dogs that don't bark, they might have significance. And so even if we love the archive and celebrate the archive, we want to increase archival access. We, just, we want people who are doing serious, um, serious qualitative work to think carefully about where this fodder is coming from and to talk about it in an explicit, explicit way. Um, right, we have three females, three males, three faculty, three students. Pretty good so far. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, up here, please. And a historian. <laughs> As one of the relatively few historians present, I did try and get some of my colleagues to come, but uh, Thursday evenings are hard. Um, I, I, I just wonder, so I, I like a lot of this, a lot of what you're saying, Andy, and I think in, in many ways, you, so we, we discussed this a long time ago when I was in Princeton, and at that stage, you were still sort of, I, I think, if I understood you correctly, at that stage, still more thinking in terms of archiving large amounts of documents and I was one of those saying that I, the archive, archivist I work with will shoot me if I put it right. all online. Uh, so I, I think you've, you, you've moved in a very sensible direction in terms of, uh, of making it workable and making it, making it de deliverable in that sense. But there are two aspects still that worry me. The first is, to some extent, the point that's already been made about monographs. Sort of, I, history is still a discipline which is driven as much by the book as it is by the article. And it does strike me that what you are saying is something that will, in a sense, 
increased the divide and increased the difference in genre between the article and the book to an even greater extent. I'm not quite certain how that will play out, but I think it's problematic that it will, that it will do so so clearly. But the second thing is that it makes me wonder whether you're not actually creating, uh, in terms of usability, a, a hierarchy of your sources. Because there are some sources that are digitally available and there are some sources that are harder to make digitally available. And people are lazy. And are, is the danger not that you're actually, in a sense, encouraging people to use, to cite the, the archive that is, uh, to cite the article that is clickable through to, to, to use the open source document rather than the one where they would actually have to scan it themselves or, worst, worst of all, type it in themselves. Uh, is, is there not a danger that the, the very method will actually push people in certain directions in terms of what they use as evidence uh, and how inclined they are to use it? So just for instance, the foreign yeah. language, which needs to be translated. Yeah. Better the source in English that you don't have to translate from the French or the German or the Chinese or whatever right. it is. Um, so the book is an interesting question. You know, I think we need to think creatively about this. We were talking about this this afternoon. And, and um, I mean, it's very hard to know because I think academic publishing, books in general, what, what, the form we write things is is in fundamental change and we don't know how it's going to come out. You could make an argument this is actually making articles more like books. I mean, you know, what appears to be a 10,000 word article is now really going to be a 25,000 word article with all kinds of other stuff in it if you want it to be. Um, and you could argue that it's going to make books a lot more like articles because what's happening in academic presses in the United States and it's going to happen in Britain as soon as Oxford runs out of money is that um, uh, basically what university presses increasingly want to do is publish short books, shorter books with the idea that they're kind of taking a lottery ticket to publish something that's going to have some kind of trade resonance, right? So you get these kind of Simon Shama e-books. Um, and uh, that was cheap, but whatever. Um, is this a podcast? God, cut that business. <laughs> and um, so... Um, and um, so you could imagine, actually, that that pressure will get pretty intense and that the modal book will be much more like the modal article in many disciplines, where the article is shorter and the stuff connected to it is longer. So people will publish books that are 75 to 100,000 words long. They're something between popular and kind of like a scientific article is, like advertising for this analysis that you can look more closely in the supplementary material about. And then a lot of the other analysis will be in more detailed form for those people. And you can kind of go as deeply into it as you want to. Now, this makes us a little uncomfortable because we like, I like more as much as anybody, this kind of traditional narrative form. But I think that the world is changing. And it's very possible that um, if we want to preserve various things about the presentation of work within the current structure, given economic constraints, we're going to have to figure out ways to do it um, that um, are more consistent with, with you know, what publishers are asking us to do and that kind of stuff. I, I'm convinced that 
you know, things like the Choice for Europe and so on that I published early in my career would be almost impossible to publish now, given the way academic publishers are now. And, and um, so you need to think of other ways to do it. And, um, and people in future generations are going to be more comfortable with that kind of notion that a text is both horizontal and vertical as opposed to just horizontal. So um, I, I think it's harder to tell what's, what's going uh, to happen. Um, there is this risk that people will um, only look at um, you know, easy documents. Um, I don't think the risk, I think the risk is in some ways worse than what you say. Um, so I'll, I'll give what I think is in a way the, the most troubling criticism of, of this kind of proposal. So I, I don't actually fear that people will take documents that are hard to translate or something like that. And people already have a tendency to want to cite things that are online and the, from the you know, cabinet documents rather than actually going to the archives and things like that. I mean, it's a quite common thing if you read the stuff that we read on the EU. You always see the same stuff cited and it's the stuff that you can get on the little city. But... Um, that, and that won't change fundamentally. What, what I worry about is something different. That suppose um, these entries in the um, active, cita active citation entries with 50 to 100 words of text with an annotation become commonplace and people can harvest them and put them into databases and so on perhaps they'll become sort of the coin of the realm instead of going to the archive or actually looking at the original document, right? And the bad money will drive out the good, and you'll get a kind of debased empirical debate. And then the choice becomes, do you want a kind of broader democratic, quote-unquote democratic, broader debate of people who have a more superficial knowledge, or do you want a deeper debate of a very handful of people who have a deeper knowledge? Um, my guess is that you'll get both. Um, for historians, I can see why this is a somewhat troubling trade-off. For political scientists, it's not a troubling trade-off because our deep debate is so debased at the current point, I think, that anything's better than the status quo. But I can understand why in other disciplines it would be problematic. But I take heart from fields like law. So law has almost exactly this system in place. And you can say a lot of things about lawyers, but that they, that they lack technical knowledge of the detailed texts that they study, legal and non-legal, that you cannot say about lawyers. And so I think that in unbalanced, this will encourage academics who are obsessive compulsive people, as you can tell by the way I am hammering the answer to this question into the table, that um, th they, will, they will do the right thing. All right. I think we have time for one more question, and I will go here. Apologies. Or, or may, may, I'll tell you what. Let's take both questions. Okay. Let's do that. Um, hi. Uh, also a PhD student from the IR department. Uh, I was wondering if you could comment a bit more on the context of this project. First of all, why now? And second of all, where does this come from? Is this, does this come from the... Um, community working on, quanti uh, on qualitative methods, or does it come from the quantitative researchers demanding more uh, transparency from this tradition, or does it have to do with funding? So we'll take the last question in the back, and then we'll give, give our speaker the, the final word. Thank you. Um, I think I'm representing one of the few Southern Hemisphere voices here. Um, I'm approaching this from a journalistic perspective, not academic perspective. So 
is, is the big elephant in the room not the fact that technology is changing all this? Um, academics are accountable, ultimately, mostly, not always, to the public good, uh, to funders. So you mentioned funders before. These funders, the likes of the Gates Foundation and people like that with you know, billions of dollars, um, want public access. They want to transform research into publicly accessible um, um, material. So is this, essentially this debate amongst academics um, really just not misplaced given the wave that, you know, of the future uh, belongs to really just opening up and potentially actually along the lines you're just saying um, there'll be new standards essentially that are dictated, upon, you know, dictated to um, researchers rather than these false choices that are being made at the moment about what to, you know, what to cite, how to cite and um, how to annotate and all that. So is that not really the, um, you know, the, the big, you know, the big issue here? Um, it's, um, it's technology is going to revolutionize all this, mm -hmm. and um, this is, will be a moot debate. Okay. Um, so in the first question, it's kind of like a perfect storm. So there are various people that have been involved in this for various reasons. So um, I was sort of working on this for, actually, I was originally working on this for the totally bizarre reason that I was, uh, something I wrote was challenged by a bunch of people who said what well, the footnotes I wrote were wrong. And so I went through them and I thought, well, that's not right. Footnotes I wrote are right. But there was no way to show that I was right and they were wrong. And so they said like 220 things I said were wrong. And, and so I sent a graduate student out who's now a professor at Berkeley um, to look at them. And he, he, he said, well, they're totally wrong. And I said, but yeah, but how am I going to show that? You know, there was no way to show it. And they just asserted it, you know? So, and so I got to thinking, like, why is it we can't have a debate about data in the field? We have absolutely no idea what anybody's saying or why they're saying it beyond the level of just what they footnote. And so I got to thinking about it, and I was just like plugging along, thinking about this as a kind of abstract problem. I had absolutely no idea it would ever be realizable. It just kind of seemed like a good idea. There were other people who were worried about the funding. So, you know, the US government was saying we're not going to fund stuff. The UK government was saying we're not going to fund stuff. You know, the NSF was saying we're not going to fund stuff. Quantitative people were concerned that the Senate was going to cut off funding to all the social science in the United States, and they wanted to create legitimacy for it. You know, there are people who, like um, Simon's friends, who want pre-registration and experimental work and just thought this will make it rigorous because we have some ideal of that. You know, you've got a million different motivations. Uh, I tend to think that a lot of it is, as, as our friend in the back said, that technology is changing. We're just used to a world that's a lot more transparent, and it seems utterly bizarre to us in a digital world now increasingly to have a bunch of stuff that you can't see through when it claims to, ha to have something. But um, that does not mean that somebody's going to dictate the precise terms of that. There are two reasons for that. One is that academic, academia is traditionally semi-independent and even funders recognize that. Um, so they want it to be transparent, but they're not really quite sure what transparency is. And that's particularly true for qualitative work. They have some vague sense of what it means with quantitative work because there's some tradition of this so they can kind of dictate a set of standards that somebody else has used. And in some areas, they're really quite developed, like medical work. 
but in qualitative work, they have no idea. And so they come to us. So like the World Bank is under pressure to be transparent in qualitative work, and they go, we have absolutely no clue what this is. So they came to Princeton and said, would you put together a bunch of modules that can tell us when we do a case study what it means to be transparent? Because we have no idea. Our economists know transparency, but we don't know, right? So um, it won't come from the funders, per se, because they really don't know how to solve the problem. As you can see, it takes a lot of thought about practically what you can do. Um, and, um, but I think you're right that the answer to this is a kind of compromise between the real world imperatives that people face as researchers and the you know, people that need funding and people that have to, have to follow the law and have to follow university regulations like human subjects, which are, which are themselves regulated by government standards on the one hand, and our own academic ideals of transparency. It's a kind of compromise between these two things, and that's what I tried to portray at the start of the talk, that the idea of perfect transparency and replicability, even in quantitative work, where they truly believe in a completely naive way that they're, they're completely transparent and completely replicable, is an illusion, right? Every form of transparency is limited. And it's always a compromise between what you can actually achieve and other values that you have, like protecting your subjects and following the law and, and not wasting all your time documenting everything you do. Um, and on the other hand, um, providing openness so other people can understand why you reached the conclusion that you reached. All right, well, um, thank you. That was definitely the best talk that I've ever been to that had data in the title. <laughs> I've only been to three, but um, let, me, let me just thank again all the people at the public events, for, for, for uh, the good people for putting this on, the International Relations Department for sponsoring it, all of you for coming, and we can all thank um, Professor Morovchek for a really very uh, provocative and scintillating talk. Thank you very much.